Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the deal struck between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy to avert a default on the manufactured crisis over the debt ceiling, which has left progressives on the left furious that Biden caved, and on the far right, members of the House Freedom Caucus are up in arms with Congressman Dan Bishop calling for the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. Joining us to discuss the likely passage of the bill from the Rules Committee today to a vote on the floor tomorrow, then to a vote later in the Senate, is Jeff Hauser, Executive Director of the Revolving Door Project at the Centre for Economic and Policy Research, who works to increase scrutiny on executive branch appointments and ensure that political appointees are focused on serving the public interest rather than personal professional advancement. Then, with Trump, the Republican frontrunner, who some polls indicate is ahead of Biden to become the next president, we will look into the successful muddying of the waters by both the far right and the far left, who have made the label Russiagate equivalent to a hoax, when the evidence is overwhelming that Putin helped elect Trump in 2016 and is heavily invested in him returning to the White House to cut off aid to Ukraine and pull the U.S. out of NATO. Joining us is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. He is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and we will discuss his article at the National Interest, The Trump-Russia Problem Remains. Then finally, we'll assess the extent to which Erdogan's 52 to 48% victory in Sunday's election in Turkey is also a victory for Putin and speak with Aaron Stein, the chief content officer at War on the Rocks, whose research interests include U.S.-Turkey relations and Turkish foreign policy. He previously worked as a consultant for the International Crisis Group in Istanbul and has published articles and reports on Turkish nuclear capabilities and Turkish elections. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jeff Hauser, the Executive Director of the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who works to increase scrutiny on executive branch appointments and ensure that political appointees are focused on serving the public interests rather than personal professional advancement. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeff Hauser. It's great to be here. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And the deal that was struck between uh, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy is now before the Rules Committee. They began their deliberations at 3 p.m. Eastern today. But uh, the Freedom Caucus did have a press conference, and at least two members of the Freedom Caucus that are on the Rules Committee, Chip Roy said, not one Republican will vote for this deal. It's a very bad deal. And Ralph Norman, also on the Rules Committee, said the Dems, the Dems are for it, and it more or less implied because the Dems are for it, he's against it. But Representative Dan Bishop, he actually called for the ouster of McCarthy. So that was pretty, I think, <laughs> I mean, that could portend. I mean, it all it takes is one person to get rid of McCarthy. So what do you think? Do you think he's got the votes? He says he has, McCarthy, but all you need is one more member of the Republican Rules Committee to defect, and the bill doesn't go to the floor. Sure. Um, I think McCarthy has the votes, and I think that the number of procedural tricks he has available to him should not be underestimated. The Rules Committee is very important in part because the speaker uh, flows things through the Rules Committee and it's much easier procedurally to get things onto the floor in a tidy manner that is controlled by the speaker when it gets through the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee is this odd um, structure in the House of Representatives that is typically very loyal to the Speaker of the House. McCarthy did not have full control of the Rules Committee because it was very difficult for him to become Speaker, and he was forced to put on some unreliable members of the House Freedom Caucus onto his Rules Committee uh, team. It was a concession that he had to make as a weak Speaker. Nonetheless, I believe he has been planning all along how he gets this through rules that he knows that he will get the third, that there will not be a third Republican uh, to vote against him, and he will be able to squeeze this through. And I'm sure he even has a backup plan regardless. This is a classic hope, uh, yes, vote, no situation for many members in the Republican caucus. They've done very well for themselves in this deal. They have leveraged the debt ceiling. Uh, They haven't leveraged as much as they hoped for, but they raised expectations so wildly that any deal was going to um, be somewhat disappointing to the right. And the fact that the conversation got tilted so far to the right is helping President Biden recruit a ton of Democrats to vote for this bill, which is why if and when it gets to the floor, it is going to pass the House and it will pass the Senate. Um, with a lot of Democratic votes, even though it's a right-leaning bill. And that's that's how I view the sausage-making process in Washington as of now. So the third possibility to sink the bill in the Rules Committee is Massey of Kentucky. And he's, of course, famous for sending out a Christmas card of his entire family uh, brandishing machine guns in front of a Christmas tree. But he got something in the bill, didn't he? So he's likely to go along with it. And by the way, Senator Joe Manchin got this gas pipeline that the environmentalists in, in West Virginia are furious about. Yes. I mean, who amongst us has not um, flaunted our control of an armory, you know, adequate to take down a small country? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, America's unfortunately not sending its best to Congress. Um, and Thomas Massey has a lot of, uh, 
power at this moment, and I think he has leveraged it well. And Kevin McCarthy was counting votes from the outset. And I think that McCarthy and Biden's team have had a plan in place for how this gets through. Um, Massey proposed a mechanism for um, either Congress doing, oddly enough, what they should do, which is to pass 12 distinct appropriations bills one by one in detail. Um, and if that does not happen, there's um, there'll be some, a cuts to both non-defense and defense spending. And so the idea is that this incentivizes Congress, where most members support one of those two types of spending, uh, to make these deals, to make Congress work, which is to actually pass specific appropriations bills one by one on different topics, as opposed to a just end of the year continuing resolution where it's all just handled by leadership and there's not a lot of public input into specific elements of the budget. Um, I think Massey gets a victory that he can take home to his constituents and can also uh, use to make his ego feel good. And that typically is a pretty good vote winning strategy in Washington to play to the ego of people. Uh, so again, that's kind of why I think McCarthy is going to get this through. Um, but yeah, I do not like that Thomas Massey has so much influence on American policy. So, Jeff, what about uh, then what we know about this bill that was worked out between Biden and McCarthy to prevent a default on the debt? Uh, it's a clock ticks towards now that it's been pushed to June the 5th, but that's still very close. And presumably if it goes through the Rules Committee today, they'll vote on it tomorrow. But what we know is that Biden caved into and agreed to $1 trillion in cuts over the next decade, which is certainly less than the Republican demand of $4.8 trillion. Yeah, this deal has a few different parts. The single most obnoxious is that they were even discussing the debt ceiling at all. The debt ceiling is illegal incoherence that is essentially a misreading of a 1917 law that was actually designed to make it easier for the Treasury Department to borrow money when Congress has created obligations for the executive branch to spend, but there isn't enough tax revenue. So this law, which is designed to make it easier for the government to borrow, is being construed as creating a limit on the executive branch spending money that Congress has appropriated. The debt ceiling is illegal incoherence. It should not be followed. It is in contravention of the 14th Amendment, as well as the presentment clause within the Constitution. I am upset that Joe Biden negotiated on this. He promised he would not. He broke that promise, and it created a lot of leverage for the Republican Party. I think with that uh, leverage, there are two sets of gains that Republicans made. One is to the amount of money being spent over you can look at this either the next two years, the next six years, or the next decade. There are different ways of looking at it. I think the next two is probably the best because the deal has more teeth and more enforceability within the next two years. So I don't even know that a trillion dollars has been cut. But nevertheless, I think these cuts are very real because they essentially hold steady or tiny reductions in federal government spending in nominal terms. That means in the exact amount. That means they are intentionally not taking into account inflation. Inflation, a big topic in America, we're all aware it exists, 
means that by in two years time, it is likely that the spending value of a dollar now will only be 92 cents then. So if you go from spending a dollar to 92 cents, I wouldn't call that flat spending. I would call that a cut of 8%. That is what it is in real terms. And so Biden has agreed to cut the ability of the government to say, enforce the Clean Water Act or the government to enforce uh, the minimum wage and workplace safety and other key aspects of the labor department or food safety. Um, all across the government, we have uh, key services which are going to be um, slashed because of this deal. Uh, and then the third category beyond the debt ceiling uh, and the spending cuts are these kind of potpourri of right-wing asks. Again, the Republicans didn't get everything they were looking for, but they got a lot more than they should have. And that, that reflects, um, that's present in the ability to get uh, certain social safety net benefits to access them. Those benefits have been cut. That's the pipeline uh, payout to Joe Manchin. There are a handful of little policy wins that are unconnected to the budget that the Republicans were given essentially for raising the debt ceiling. The, the hostage takers were paid off. They didn't get everything they asked for, but they got away scot-free and they did get stuff. And they protected the defense spending, right? While going after non-defense spending, right? So that is their priority. Uh, and the Democrats, I mean, it's one of the few things that unfortunately the Democrats and Republicans agree on. They just keep throwing money at the Pentagon. Absolutely. So um, the I will in no way defend any aspect of the Obama era uh, budget deals, but they did create a template of um, treating non-defense and defense spending the same. And that is a win by the Republican Party to break that tie uh, such that there is essentially an inflation adjustment in defense spending, which was obviously already bloated, um, and no such um, uh, increase in non-defense. So that, uh, yes, that definitely reflects priorities and um, it's troubling because the more we have these negotiations in the future, not only related to a debt ceiling, but just keeping the government going um, if the annual budget process fails, which is the case most years, sadly, uh, you've now broken that precedent of treating non-defense and defense the same. So that is a very bad precedent that Republicans have won. So what's your sense then, Jeff Hauser, of what's going to happen in the next couple of days? If they vote on it tomorrow, assuming it gets out of the Rules Committee, we know that some on the left of the Democratic side and on the far right on the Republican side will vote against it. But the minority leader in the House, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, seems to think that there are 150 Republican votes and there are certainly enough Democratic votes. And of course, the more Democratic votes that get this thing over the top, the more the House Freedom Caucus is angry, right? <laughs> so that, that seems to be the mechanism, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a situation in which I hope I have not become too world-weary, cynical, lived in D.C. too long. But I think the events of this week are largely going to be kabuki theater. There are two different ways to play this if you are a power-hungry member of Congress. On the one hand, you can try to build out your profile by 
voting against the bill. And now I'm just talking about the Republicans because I support Democrats voting against the bill. But if, if amongst the Republicans, um, and to some extent amongst some of the Democrats, uh, you're going to see people vote for the bill because they want to earn favors from leadership or President Biden. Um, and you're going to see people vote against the bill because they want to increase their public prominence. It is a great time for previously obscure members of the Republican caucus to see themselves on Fox News, to see their every move dissected on social media. This is just like being a member of Congress is often a pretty low profile job. Despite the importance of Congress as an institution, there are 435 members and most of them are not famous. Here's a chance for a lot of people to get 15 minutes of fame. Um, and so I think some of the opposition is gonna seem loud, it's gonna seem dramatic, it's going to seem to call into question whether or not Biden and McCarthy really have the votes. But in my experience, and again, I, you know, at some point in time, this kind of world weary analysis is going to be proven wrong. Sometimes, you know, establishment wisdom is wrong. You know, Donald Trump was not my expected person to be inaugurated in January of 2017. So there are upsets. But I think in the end, there's going to be a lot of noise and fury, but it will not signify anything. And this deal will happen. And what happens in the Senate, do you think, Jeff? I mean, like just that, like, I think the Senate, they probably get more north of 70 votes because there is a lot more um, eagerness to appear bipartisan. Uh, people get to earn shits. I think both McConnell and Schumer want this to pass. They don't want to barely pass because they don't want anyone to bear the burden of being the only person to pass. Um, so there'll be lots of trading about like, can we allow this person to vote this way or then not? And, you know, this person is facing a potential primary. So we'll let them oppose if that's good in their district or their state. I mean, I think there is going to be a lot of manipulation of the public discourse in the next few days to make this seem more dramatic than it really is. But. If Senator Rand Paul does, which he often does, throw sand in the gears, he could slow this down, couldn't he? And that would then bump up against this uh, deadline. Yeah, no, yes, there are definitely scenarios, but I believe Treasury has developed plans. Essentially, what will happen is that, let's say hypothetically, uh, the X date is June 5th, and this is um, completed on June 12th. And so there was a week of um a bumping the road uh what that means is certain interest payments won't be made I, i'm gonna get this roughly right i apologize if there's any detail i might be getting wrong but essentially for a week there may not be certain interest payments made by treasury um but they will uh they will figure out ways to roll over bonds such that the kind of devastating international consequences of people believing that U.S. government bonds are not secure will not occur. They have mechanisms in place. I don't think like it's one second of default and we're in a amidst chaos. That That's not how this would play out. It would take a genuine uncertainty of an extended period of time in terms of pe uh, people become seriously worried that they will ever get paid out fully on U.S. bonds for the devastating consequences of default to really come into being. I think at some level, there has been a little bit too much magical default, non-default um, as this like completely binary situation. 
whereas I believe a technical violation of that it could lead to a, a drop in the credit rating of um, Amer of U.S. bonds, just like there was one um, under President Obama. But I don't think it'll be a super dramatic event. Well, just in closing, though, Jeff, the fact that this is happening at all, as you mentioned, it should not have gotten to this situation. And the fact that Donald Trump has actually urged the Freedom Caucus to default, he's called for a default. We know what a default will do, right? It'll do devastating damage to both the American economy and the global economy. So anybody that encourages and, and, and wants a default, to my mind, is a traitor. They literally are against the interests of the United States. And, and these Freedom Caucus people, many of them want to create chaos, tank the economy, so that will help Trump win and come back in 2024. They're, they're oh, making, absolutely. They're not yeah, making yeah. a secret about this. So yeah. why in God's name can't the Democrats point out to the American people that this whole constituency of the Freedom Caucus and Donald Trump are basically traitors. They want to destroy the American economy in order to bring back a guy who's totally owned by Putin. Uh, yes. I mean, we're in complete agreement that like a, a genuine breach is unbelievably scary. Uh, and the fact that the debt ceiling is being used and that there are many people who genuinely want to see the U.S. default in a meaningful sense, that reflects a complete lack of patriotism and yes, it, it meets any broader definition of the term treason. Democrats, there is a brand of establishment Democrat with whom I definitively do not associate myself that includes Joe Biden, who I think believe that if we fake the idea that the leaders of both parties are still patriots who may have differing ideologies, but each love the country, that over time, that we can fake it until we make it. And it can be the case. And again, that's not to say leaders of both parties in the past were terrific. Um, but like, you know, you did have Everett Dirksen support the Civil Rights uh, Act and other key legislation. And I do think that the leadership in uh, the post-World War II Senate was on a bipartisan matter vastly superior to what it is now. At least like the Republicans were much, much more responsible than they are now. But I think Biden thinks the way to get back there is to pretend the situation is less bleak than it is. That's not how you or I view it, but I think they're faking it. They want to reassure people that things still fundamentally work. And so each time there is um, an unlikely but real chance of cataclysm, if we avoid it, they want to act like it wasn't really that big a deal. And in my view, they absolutely should have taken this um, period over the last month to attack the debt ceiling. The notion that we're going to be back here in less than two years, in 2025, is insanity to me. I mean, we all know how ridiculous this is, at least all of us who are patriotic people. We should kill the debt ceiling. There is a lawsuit filed by an SEIU affiliate, the National Association of Government Employees in Boston, where they're suing the federal government saying, you cannot imply, uh, apply the debt ceiling in a legal manner or a constitutional matter. And as such, you are threatening the interests of our members who are government employees. And that lawsuit is meritorious. 
And the U.S. government should not defend the debt ceiling. They should instead say, yes, you are correct. Let's work with the judge to find an outcome here. Um, and we've been hoping the National Association of Government Employees lawsuit would be a vehicle to end the debt ceiling as it is currently understood. Um, that has not been the tack that the federal government has taken under Joe Biden. But we really need to end the debt ceiling. Uh, other countries do not have this mechanism. It is a misunderstanding of why we have it in the first place, the way it has been applied by Republican terrorists in the last generation. And it is an urgent problem that should be a top priority for Biden and his team to solve. And unfortunately, it just has not been. Right. Well, just to make clear that when I use the word traitor referring to Trump and the Freedom Caucus in the House, it may sound like hyperbole, but America's enemies would love to see the U.S. default. And they're working on trying to replace the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. It would devastate the U.S. dollar. So a default would be the best thing that happened to Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and the supreme leader in Iran and others. That's the evidence, surely. Oh, yes. I mean, the U.S. gains enormous benefits from having our currency be the reserve currency of international economics. And that is definitely uh, called into question each and every time we have the debt ceiling. Uh, it makes us a laughing stock around the world. Uh, you know, Biden was set to visit Papua New Guinea to be the first American president to visit that country, uh, a country that the United States is um, looking to get closer to, um, in part due to uh, rivalry with China, as you referenced. And Biden uh, stood them up because he had to come back to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy. I mean, that's ludicrous. Um, this is all political gamesmanship um, by a bunch of nutso opportunists in the Republican Party. But at this point in time, the difference between being a nutso opportunist in the Republican Party and being the leadership of the Republican Party varies between almost nothing and completely nothing. So it's a very bad situation we're in, uh, given the nature of the Republican Party in 2023. Well, Jeff Hauser, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, it was my pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Jeff Hauser, who's Executive Director of the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who works to increase scrutiny on executive branch appointments and ensure that political appointees are focused on serving the public interest rather than personal professional advancement. We can take a B-station break. We're back looking into the successful muddying of the waters by both the far right and the far left, who have made the label Russiagate equivalent to a hoax, when the evidence is overwhelming that Putin helped elect Trump in 2016 and is heavily invested in him returning to the White House to cut off aid to Ukraine and pull the U.S. out of NATO. Outside the patient millions Put them into power Expect a little more back for their taxes Like school books, beds in hospitals And peace in our bloody time All they get is old men grinding axes Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing Available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. 
He is currently Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at the National Interest, The Trump-Russia Problem Remains. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Pillar. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And I find it extraordinary that Trump has dodged this bullet to the extent that Russiagate has become a kind of pejorative, and yet there's so much evidence of his ties to Russia and before that the Soviet Union that it's just infuriating that somehow the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater here and that people like Bill Barr, the former Attorney General, and Durham, the guy that he appointed, have managed to muddy the waters to the point where a lot of people on the right in this country and on the left in this country don't believe that uh, there's such a thing as uh, as Russian influence over the 2016 election and continuing Russian active measures to this day. And I don't know why people can't look at the obvious evidence. Just the other day, Donald Trump called for a default on our debt. Can you imagine what damage that would do to the United States economy and to this country, to its national security? Only a traitor would make such a remark. And this happens to be coming from a former president of the United States. Well, you know, I don't think it's too strong for you, you to use the T word, uh, Ian, the traitor, because if you look back at uh, Trump's policies when he's in office, when he was in office for four years, and also what he said since then, and you, you cited one thing that he said, and you ask yourself, in whose interests are these positions and these policies taken, or whose interests do they serve and whose interests do they oppose? And I would put you know, at the very top of the list, just the fomenting of enormous political division and discrediting of American democracy, which, of course, uh, the whole thing about the big lie and and trying to uh, overturn the results of the 2020 election, that's what it's all about. That is all very much in the interests of Putin's regime in Russia. Uh, he would love to do whatever he could to discredit American democracy, and it is obviously very much uh, opposed to U.S. interest. And then there's all the other things, uh, such as the positions that uh, Trump has taken uh, on Russia's policy toward Ukraine, uh, and what you just mentioned regarding, uh, you know, the the American economy. Uh, that's all one aspect of the big question of uh, whose interests are being served here. And in addition to this, the Russians recently announced a list of 500 Americans that were being sanctioned. And on that list were a lot of people that were causing trouble for Trump. Uh, Brad Raffensperger from Georgia, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, even Michael Byrd, the Capitol Police officer who shot the rioter. And it seems as if that list was a way for the Russians to basically signal to their sympathizers over here who are the real enemies. And this is clearly an effort on their part to help Trump, not that there's not covert active measures underway. Because if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, Putin is doing very poorly on the battlefield and is likely to have suffer even more reverses with this counteroffensive from the Ukrainians. Surely Putin's best play is to get enough right-wing 
Americans and Congress people to cut off aid to Ukraine, or better still, bring back Donald Trump, who will not only cut off aid to Ukraine, but will pull the U.S. out of NATO. So surely that's Putin's best play, is it not? Yes, and and the the list of sanctioned Americans you just mentioned, uh, there's no reason why the people like Raffensperger and the others that uh, Trump has identified as his foes uh, because of his own actions and legal problems, absolutely no reason for the Russians to list those people who have nothing to do with U.S. policy toward Russia except to signal uh, that uh, they still, they, the Russians, uh, Putin's regime, still have a stake in Trump returning to power. Um, part of the larger context of this, Ian, also is that uh, as you talk about uh, Putin's troubles with the war and so on, uh, Putin has done his best to try to cultivate uh, support on the populist right in other respects as well. Uh, sounding themes of uh, xenophobia and, uh, you know, anti-gay rights and things of this nature that appeal to that segment uh, that is also uh, the core of Donald Trump's support. Um, And I absolutely agree with you that uh, his troubles with the Ukraine war have only accentuated his stake in trying to build this kind of support in the West and especially in the United States uh, with the hope that it will further lessen uh, U.S. support uh, for Ukraine that has been so, uh, so prominent a part of the Biden administration's policies. So how do you personally feel, Paul, about Trump's chances? Because I think he's actually poses an incredibly serious threat. And it seems like his uh, challenges, uh, particularly to Sanders and the, the other sort of lesser wannabes, are really fading. And all it would take for Biden to drop precipitously in the polls was between now and the elections for him to stumble and fall. So in that context, it seems like Biden and the Democrats are hanging by a thread, and this this threat from Trump has got to be taken seriously. I, I quite agree. And with regard to uh, the Republican nomination, I think Trump is in position to benefit from uh, the same situation he benefited from in 2016, which is to say there's an assortment of uh, other Republican uh, challengers, uh, wannabes. We've already had several formally enter the race, not just DeSantis, but uh, you know Scott and Haley and the others. And uh, I think the, the main division you're gonna see as that race heats up is it's you know Trump versus the field. And because the field is divided, he's going to have a plurality in a lot of the early uh, uh, contests in terms of primaries and, and the Iowa caucuses and so on. So I think he's right now got, a ver- unfortunately, a very good chance of getting the Republican nomination once again. And uh, if it is a general election contest between him and Biden, uh, you're right that uh, Biden has a vulnerability about uh, you know something as simple as a stumble is going to play upon the theme of his age and so on, even though Trump, we might add, is just four years younger. Um, and uh, the other thing that Trump has going for him is that he's got a base of support that really you know, it won't turn against him, even if he shot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue. I mean, it's, it's simply a, a 
very firm, what's it going to be, 35% or so that he begins with, where no matter what he says or does, no matter how outrageous it is, he's still going to have that base. And so he just uh, can, can build upon that. In short, I agree with you that we've got a, a, a real threat here. Well, you know, it's not just that you have candidates who are mentally unstable and, and unfit like Trump. You also have evidence that countries can get into the grip of madness. It happened to the United Kingdom, an important NATO ally of the U.S. They've been paralyzed by Brexit with through making a terrible choice. Uh, and by the way, the biggest funder to Brexit was an insurance executive who it appears got most of the money, the nine million pounds, from Putin, from the Russians. So they certainly had a hand in Brexit. So it could happen here in the sense that, I mean, people who vote for Trump are infected by a kind of madness because they don't know or they don't seem to want to know about who this man is when the evidence out there is so extant. What's your feeling about the people that served with him and the extent to which they could inform the the American people about who this man really is and what a disastrous and dangerous and incompetent president he was. Miles Taylor, the guy that was anonymous, has come forth and told us a little bit about some of the more outrageous stuff. But General Kelly, General Mattis, McMaster, Bolton and others, don't they owe it to the American people to really come forward and explain to the American public about America's most dangerous, incompetent, ill-equipped and reckless, uh, ignorant, sadistic president? Well, I agree that they have an obligation, but we've seen over and over uh, a matter of uh, personal ambition trumping a sense of obligation. Now, with regard to former officials and those who perhaps, you know, aren't on the make anymore, we might have a little more hope of of them speaking out. But there will always be uh, some others who, despite their inner misgivings about uh, this man, mainly Trump, uh, his, you know, his, his qualities and his, the dangers he poses, the, um, uh, the individual ambitions have, have won out. I mean, just look at William Barr, who during his previous tenure in an uh, earlier administration as an attorney general, uh, got a decent reputation for his performance. And then he seemed to, uh, once he worked for Trump as his attorney general, uh, at least until the very end, was working as if he were Trump's personal lawyer um, and not as the attorney general of the United States. And I'm thinking of things like how he intentionally uh, misrepresented uh, Robert Mueller's whole report about about the Russian interference and, and Trump's efforts to uh, obstruct uh, investigations into it. And now, you know, Barr in retirement is, is saying, um, you know, different things, but... Uh, when he was close to the man himself, he certainly wasn't uh, doing anything to alert the American public about what was going on. And I'm afraid we're going to see other people fill that role uh, if Trump were back in office. So I understand to some extent why the people on the right in this country or the far right support Trump and Putin and their relationship because, you know, Putin and you know, goes after gays and big on so-called family values, etc. And and there may be some explanation in that. But it's hard to understand on the left 
why anybody would see Putin as <laughs> a socialist. I mean, he's about as far to the right as you can possibly be. In fact, in the political lexicon, it's fair to call him a fascist. And why they fall into the belief system on the right of this Russiagate hoax is equally puzzling. I mean, many on the left support Reality Winner, who leaked NSA documents to The Intercept, um, don't think she should be in jail, but they fail to notice the fact that what she leaked was information about Russia's interference in the 2016 election. So you can't have it both ways. I just don't understand it. And the same with support for WikiLeaks. I mean, it's just that evidence is absolutely clear that Russian officials from the London embassy handed off material to Julian Assange. It was documented by the Spanish security company that did security for the Ecuadorian embassy. And then immediately Julian Assange published the Russian hacks of Hillary Clinton's and, and the DNC, and they went up right away to take this damaging story off the headlines, which was the uh, Access Hollywood tapes revealing Trump's outrageous behavior towards women. And to some extent, it worked. So I don't know. We could recite all the evidence, but the evidence is extraordinary. I guess it, it's a long-winded question, I understand. But is it possible that somebody can put all this evidence together and put this thing to bed so that this Russiagate hoax is no longer taken seriously? Well, first, Ian, let me uh, comment on you know what's happening, I think, among some on the left. I think there are a couple of uh, dynamics involved here. One is a, a habitual suspicion of an opposition to security agencies like the CIA and the FBI and the so-called deep state. And so there is an almost uh, automatic uh, negative reaction to something like an FBI investigation into this whole subject that we're talking about, about the Russian involvement and Trump's connections. Uh, the other thing I see on some, among some on the left is a strong desire, perhaps you know, nobly motivated, uh, to reduce uh, uh, the level of tension and conflict and even the possibility of war uh, with Russia. Uh, uh, and that uh, in order to do this, um, there's an effort to tamp down anything uh, that would excite anti-Russian sentiment here in the United States. Um, both of those efforts, I think, are, are misguided, and they do result in denying the evident facts that you have just reviewed and many other facts as well. Uh, but particularly even just the, the basic, very well-established fact of Russian interference in the election, which has been documented not only by the intelligence community, but certainly in the Mueller report, uh, and uh, most voluminously by a bipartisan report that the Senate Intelligence Committee issued. Unless, But you still have some people uh, on the left who just don't want to uh, have anything on the record that uh, they see as... Um, uh, exciting, uh, you know, anti-Russian sentiment and what this may mean in terms of international tensions. Well, but it's anti-Putin sentiment. I mean, it's a it's a dictatorship, it's a kleptocracy, and it's the kind of model of government that, by the way, that Erdogan, who just got re-elected in, in Turkey, wants to follow. And it's certainly a style of government that, that Donald Trump admires. And in the meetings that Donald Trump had with Putin, there is no record 
Has there anything in you, you've been involved in government for a long time, Paul, has ever an American president met with a foreign head, in particular a foreign head that could be considered an adversary, and nobody knows what they discussed? Has that ever happened before? No, that's, that's highly unusual. I mean, the, the standard procedure is, even, even though it's it's perhaps not unprecedented for for um, two leaders to have just their interpreters present for a brief part of what they're discussing, um, you you do have the interpreters usually from from both sides, the American side and the Russian side. For most of the discussions, you have other aides, you know, the Secretary of State and other senior people there, and you certainly have a, a comprehensive debrief afterwards in which uh, the president, in our case, would discuss with his senior officials exactly what was done. In the case of Trump, uh, it was a very secretive sort of way that he choreographed his meetings with Putin. Uh, in his first meeting with Putin, Immediately afterwards, he confiscated the notes of his interpreter and and uh, got the interpreter to pledge never to say anything about what he what he heard. And then in a subsequent meeting uh, with Putin, he didn't use an American interpreter at all. The only interpreter was the Russian. So there was no American present uh, for a considerable time uh, in uh, witnessing whatever it was that Trump was discussing with Putin, and there was certainly no debrief afterwards. That is highly unusual. Right, and after that meeting as was when Trump, famously standing next to Putin, said that he trusted Putin more than he did the U.S. intelligence. And, and said that on a matter in which Putin was obviously lying through his teeth since he denied Russian interference, and it's since been well established that there was extensive Russian interference under Putin's direct orders in, in the U.S. election. So there were leaks from British intelligence that were published in The Guardian that actually uh, even had the minutes, if you will, of a National Security Council meeting in the Kremlin when they decided on this active measure campaign in 2016. So again, I go back to my puzzlement as to why the evidence, given the fact that the Mueller report got sidetracked and Nobody seems to have read the Intelligence Committee report. I mean, it seems to me that there's a sort of duty on the part of historians to sort of clear the waters muddied by John Durham and Bill Barr and and these right-wing sympathizers in this country for Putin and for Trump. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, historians will do their job. Uh, That doesn't help us much in the short term in terms of the American public's perceptions and beliefs and misbeliefs as we head into the next election next year. So um, I'm I'm unfortunately rather pessimistic about that. Uh, you know, all of the muddying of the water that you referred to earlier, Ian, it's gotten so muddy, and we've gotten to the point where people talk about Russia Gate as if we should just take it for granted that oh, that's a synonym for a hoax, uh, without taking the slightest step beyond that to look at what has been established fact through these multiple investigations. Um, it's, it, it really is disconcerting uh, the extent to which the muddying effort has seemed to have succeeded. Well, Paul Piller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. 
And again, I've been speaking with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. He's currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at the National Interest, The Trump-Russia Problem Remains. We're going to take a restation break and back with an assessment of the extent to which Erdogan's 52% to 48% victory in Sunday's election in Turkey is also a victory for Putin. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aaron Stein, who's the Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks, whose research interests include U.S.-Turkey relations and Turkish foreign policy. He previously worked as a consultant for the International Crisis Group in Istanbul and has published articles and reports on Turkish nuclear capabilities and Turkish elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Stein. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And a lot of analysts are suggesting now that the Erdogan's victory in the recent elections on Sunday in Turkey is also a victory for Vladimir Putin. How do you see it? Well, I wouldn't call it necessarily a victory or a loss for Vladimir Putin. You know, uh, I think that Turkey has been reliably neutral uh, in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and so he largely continues the status quo, which is to keep not necessarily a hostile actor um, on his maritime border. You know, Turkey and Russia do share a border. Um, and as an important conduit uh, through which he can, uh, you know, I guess, engage with the international community. You know, Turkey is one of the uh, countries that still like to engage with them, either as to try and mediate an end to the conflict or to try and reach agreement on ancillary side things uh, in the conflict in Ukraine, uh, like the export of grain. Well, we know that his son-in-law is exporting, his company is exporting the drones that have been particularly helpful for the Ukrainians, particularly early in the war when the first uh, Russian onslaught took place. Apparently, many attribute them to saving Kiev, but he does seem to be moving close to Putin, and Putin's making all kinds of favors, you know, suspending payment on, on oil and gas, allowing Russian oligarchs to move the, their assets and their super yachts and to move to the Turkish Riviera now that they can't hang out on the French Riviera. So are these, I mean, give me your sense of why you disagree with people like Sona Kapte and other Turkish specialists who think that this victory for Erdogan is also a victory for Putin. Well, I, I don't think the opposition, if they would have won the election, would have gone lock, stock and barrel with the U.S. and the European Union on sanctions. You know, the way I've described Turkish foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia is mercantilist. You know, they'll sell it. Um, and they'll sell things to both sides. So in the case of Putin, you know, there is the non-sign up to sanctions, you know, which pays itself back with goodies, like when Turkey needs a little extra cash, um, you can suspend payments. 
uh, on natural gas, or you could make timely transfers for the construction of the uh, the Russian nuclear power plant that the Russians are building for Turkey uh, on that same southern coast, uh, just close to the Riviera. But on the other side, you know, like Erdogan's son-in-law, as you said, is uh, the uh, uh, part of the conglomerate. His family runs the conglomerate that makes tur- uh, one of Turkey's drones. And they were happy to sell those to the Ukrainians. And it's the Ukrainians uh, who have the engine and the motor know-how that go into those drones to keep them flying. So in that sense, as I'd like to say, mercantilist. Everything for Turkey is for sale. Um, and so they are willing to sell to both sides uh, in this conflict as they stay neutral. And so I guess, like Sonar says, you can call that a, a victory for Putin. But again, I, I just think it's more a continuation of the status quo. So... What do you think Biden can do? I mean, if you go back to the 2016 attempted coup by elements in the Turkish military, it was a very, very incompetent coup. Uh, at one point, they actually had captured Erdogan, and they could have killed him, I guess, but they didn't. And he obviously was <laughs> still hasn't gotten over it, quite understandably, but the first person to call him was Vladimir Putin. And President Obama didn't call him for, what, four days or something. And shortly thereafter, Putin invited Erdogan to uh, St. Petersburg, where they met and struck some deals. So is there a problem there? Can you go back to 2016 and maybe, to some extent, blame the Obama administration for allowing a key member of NATO to uh, not so much defect, but at least become troublesome, as he clearly has become? Yeah, I mean, when you go back to that, like, you know, Putin was opportunistic and that he was quick to call Erdogan. But, you know, if, if we really go through the timeline, Obama was was also pretty out there within a couple hours of the coup, you know, praising Turkish democracy in a, in a statement from the White House. It depends on how Ankara wanted to read it. And sure, the U.S. could have been faster in sending a senior level person um, uh, to Turkey on a visit. Uh, and the Russians obviously were quick to offer Erdogan a visit to St. Petersburg. You know, but I think if you look back at the history of Turkish foreign policy, you know, when there are regional wars, they typically try to go neutral. And so in that sense, I don't see this as a huge outlier in how they approach regional foreign policy problems. But, you know, the relationship between Erdogan and Putin has grown considerably um, since 2016. I do think Russia's reaction to the coup in some respects uh, contributes to that. But I also think, you know, there's a lot of other things that went to it, into it, like, you know, uh, the, the way in which Syria played out, the way in which other aspects of this played out, and the way in which the Turkish the political system evolved, right? Erdogan and Putin when there are disagreements between the two sides, they they are often able to manage them with intense high-level dialogue between the two leaders. And then once those two leaders reach agreement, pushes down the system and there's no pushback from their bureaucracies. The U.S. system is far, far messier, as I think most people have come to realize. And so even if uh, Erdogan, in this case, say, were to get something from Biden um, on concessions, there are still hostile actors uh, towards Turkey within the U.S. system for all sorts of ancillary systems, uh, for all sorts of ancillary things, excuse me, uh, that make implementing even handshake agreements between the world's most powerful men, uh, in this case, the U.S. president uh, and the Turkish president, difficult to implement. So Putin's actually easier to get along. They are neighbors. And so they see a lot of synergies uh, between the two. I think the thing for U.S. policymakers is that 
you know, you kind of expect a NATO ally to uh, to get in line with the team, uh, and Turkey just doesn't want to get in line uh, and wants to play its own game. Well, the rest of the allies uh, kind of charge forward, perhaps with the exception of Hungary, uh, in trying to support uh, Kiev to the uh, largest amount possible. So can Biden do anything to stop Turkey's ability to keep Sweden out of NATO? Well, um, I, I do think that one of the reasons that there wasn't more sustained U.S. and European pressure on Turkey for the past two months was the election itself, and that if the U.S. or the Europeans were to try and put pressure on Turkey uh, politically here, that it could be used against, uh, I guess, the U.S. and to rally populist backlash in the election to Erdogan's benefit. Now that the election's over, uh, I see no reason why that pressure shouldn't increase on Turkey. Uh, and what that pressure would look like, I think, would just be increased public statements. We saw the first example of it last night, which was that Biden, for the first time, um, and which is a shift in the administration's policy, explicitly tied um, the export of U.S. F-16s to Turkey to the to Turkey allowing NATO accession uh, for for Sweden to be uh, to accede to NATO. That had been a congressional push that had been written into law, but that was not the Biden administration's policy. Now Biden, like, via statement and via his telephone call with Erdogan to congratulate him for his electoral victory, uh, made clear that that is now his administration's policy as well, not just that of the legislature. So just in closing, then, do you think, though, that since Erdogan ran a kind of anti-American campaign, is there traction in that country and in the Middle East uh, as a result maybe of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? I mean, my understanding is that even though Erdogan has a ridiculously counterintuitive idea of the economy, he's being bailed out by some of the Gulf states, particularly Qatar, with cash infusions. So... Is a lot of this strain between the U.S. and Turkey a result of some of our misadventures in the Middle East in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, I think on the economic front, which is what you're referring to, um, that's largely self-inflicted. Look, I, I think the fissures in the U.S.-Turkey relationship go back for a long time, and they were exacerbated particularly by divergences over Syria. I don't think it really had that much to do with Iraq or Afghanistan, although Iraq in particular contributed because of continued Turkish inability to solve their Kurdish problem, which is a democracy problem and not necessarily a U.S. problem. But on the economy and these cash influxes, I mean, Turkey's out of money. Their their foreign currency holdings and their central bank are net negative for the first time since basically their last major financial crisis uh, uh, way back in the early 2000s. You know, and that they're net negative because they've been having to spend significant amounts of money. We're talking about billions of dollars to keep an artificial peg at the Turkish lira to the U.S. dollar, roughly around 20 to one. You know, most economists say it should be 30 to one, and they've been defending it for elect for Erdogan's electoral populism. And they can no longer defend it any longer at the risk of default, you know, or at the risk of like essentially just running out of foreign currency. And so he's in serious trouble. And like they're doing this because he's usurped um, all Turkish institutions, the central bank, and their ec- economy is no longer run by an independent bureaucrat. It's run by himself. And frankly, he has no idea what he's doing. And he's running his economy into the ground. He has run his economy into the ground. 
So the question some people are asking is he's going to fix it. Is he going to go back to economic orthodoxy? Is he going to continue on his economic sort of wild adventures? And that's going to be his priority, number one, you know, in the um, in the weeks and perhaps months after this election. But for Turkey, the time is ticking before they like the bills come due that they can no longer pay. Well, Aaron Stein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Aaron Stein, who is the Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks, whose research interests include U.S.-Turkey relations and Turkish foreign policy. He previously worked as a consultant for the International Crisis Group in Istanbul and has published articles and reports on Turkey's nuclear capabilities and Turkish elections. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared